Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Zach Efron stars in We Are Your Friends, the story of a struggling DJ in Hollywood trying to find the sound that will launch him into stardom. It's now playing on demand. Also playing on demand is Mistress America, starring Greta Gerwig as a reckless 20-something New Yorker who pulls her depressed, soon-to-be stepsister into her mad adventures. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video units. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. In this episode, we'll look at how a half-hour comedy attempts to take on race, the immigrant experience, careers, modern dating, relationships, and more, all in just 10 episodes, as we talk about Aziz Ansari's Netflix original series, Master of None. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots, where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all featuring a common theme. And since Master of None features some nice indie filmmakers as episode directors, including The End of the Tour's James Ponsult, Hump Day's Lynn Shelton, and Tim and Eric's own Eric Wareheim, who is also one of the show's stars, we thought we'd, you know, take a look at some of the films and other work they've done and recommend some titles. And then, you know, we were like, uh, that sounds like so much work. Uh, we have these work. piles of screeners to watch mm. before the year-end list. And so instead, we're just going to recommend and some films from earlier in the year that, you know, you might want to catch up on, too. But first off, it's opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. Matt, you're up this time. What are our picks? Our first pick actually kind of fits with the overall theme of the episode, because I feel like this was a movie that really fell through the cracks for a lot of people. And uh, not something that'll probably wind up on a lot of top 10 lists. And I'm saying it deserves to, but it's a good movie. And I hope people kind of seek it out. It is called American Ultra. It was directed by Nima Nurizade, and it's available on VOD on November 24th. And I feel like maybe some of the marketing was an issue here. I feel like a case could be made that the movie that was sold by the trailers was very different than the movie the filmmakers made. The ads all made it seem like it was this wacky stoner action comedy, kind of like The Bourne Identity meets Up in Smoke. And there's definitely elements of both of those movies in American Ultra. But the the actual finished product is a lot darker and weirder, I think, than the movie that people might have expected. And it stars a friend of film critics everywhere, Jesse Eisenberg, <laughs> as Mike, this pot-smoking convenience store clerk who lives in West Virginia with his girlfriend, Phoebe, who's played by Kristen Stewart. And anytime Mike tries to get away from his hometown, he gets these crippling anxiety attacks. So he pretty much just hangs around smoking weed, working this dead-end job. And that, it turns out, is all the product of this secret government program that he was a part of and doesn't remember to train him into being a super assassin, like a Jason Bourne type. And when the program was shut down, he was brainwashed and dumped here in the middle of East Jabip nowhere to kind of cover up the whole thing, hide the evidence. Uh, but now there's this new stooge in the CIA played by Topher Grace who wants to kill Mike. So Mike's former boss, played by Connie Britton, sort of finds him, reactivates him, and turns him back into a deadly killer so he can survive. 
helps him protect himself from these waves of CIA hitmen that are sent to eliminate him. Cherry Progressive, listen. Mandelbrot set is in motion. Echo oh, Crisis has been reached. Cherry Progressive, Is that a lyric from something? Do you want your soup? Hey, stop, stop doing stuff to my car. Hey, babes, what's up? Hey, I just killed two people. <laughs> That's awesome. No, they had guns and knives and they were being like total dicks. I took a spoon and I just like, mm, I like shoved it through this guy. Why are people trying to stab you? I don't know, but I'm like freaking out. I have a lot of anxiety about this. Oh! That would have hurt. I was not a big fan of the end of this movie. In fact, I'd go so far to say as I strongly disliked the end of it of this movie. Kind of felt to me like it was almost like a betrayal of what the movie was about. But I I kind of enjoyed everything else about it. I think Eisenberg and Stewart are, are great together. Um, they were together in Adventureland before, another movie I like. I, I thought it was great to see them back together. They just have this very believable chemistry to me. They look like a real couple. They they just they fit together. They just they do go to bed. They go together very well on screen, and I liked the uh, honestly I liked the way this movie defied my expectations in some ways. You know that it's sort of an action movie, but it's not like a slick, cool, fun action movie. A lot of times, the violence in this movie is terrifying. It's not cathartic or enjoyable. Like it's sort of horrifying. And the closest thing the movie really gets to in terms of the tone is almost First Blood, the original Rambo movie, where you have this guy who's incredibly powerful but is also kind of screwed up in the head and he's being chased around this little town by these monstrous forces essentially and the screenplay is by max landis who i don't know maybe that had something to do with the reception maybe people are a little sick of him i don't know i thought it was a a pretty well-written movie it's a little cutesy at times but i think he's a talented guy and i think the movie has a lot of good ideas not a not a masterpiece but I, i really think the movie deserved better than it got didn't really get a fair shake I don't know why. Maybe Allison has some thoughts because I know she saw it too. I, I know you liked it too. I okay. Did. You like it more than I do. Yeah, but, but you didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. I think it has two great performances. Yeah. The thing I always wanted from it a bit more was I mm-hmm. felt like it was teetering on the cusp of a kind of Edgar Wright style. This is a metaphor, you yeah. know, for something about kind of the way in which he can never get out of the small town and right. which their lives are stuck and all of that. And it never doesn't finds tip over that. into it that. It never finds that. And I feel like that is the thing that would have made it like a, a solidly very good movie but as is i think it's it's messy and I, I agree that i don't think it ends well but it's got a lot of nice parts in it and i think that eisenberg and stewart are so good they're together. awesome right yeah yeah they're really really good there's a lot of good stuff in there even if i agree that it the, the whole maybe it could be stronger it doesn't quite add up to something profound if this is a movie you're going to watch at home i think it you'll be relatively satisfied so that's american ultra available on vod on november 24th And very quickly here, two more other picks. First up, a romantic comedy entitled Man Up, directed by Ben Palmer. That's available now on VOD. I like the pairing here. Simon Pegg and Lake Bell. That sounds like a lovely combination. I will read you the plot description. The film follows a single 34-year-old woman, that's Lake Bell, who, after being mistaken for a stranger's blind date, finds the perfect boyfriend in a 40-year-old divorcee. That would be Simon Pegg. So I'd love to see those two together. I think that's uh, an inspired combination simon pegg and lake bell so that's man up that's available now on vod and finally uh another film available now on vod it's called heist this is not the previous film called heist this is a new film called heist it's directed by scott mann 
And the plot description of this one says, A single father plans an in-and-out heist to rob a casino owner alongside his co-worker in order to get the money to pay for his daughter's illness. Things go awry when they are forced to hijack a bus. And the cast of this one is Robert De Niro, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, Kate Bosworth, Morris Chestnut, Dave Bautista, Gina Carano, and Mark Paul Gosseler. Not enough Saved by the Bell alums <laughs> in uh, gritty heist movies, if you ask me, Allison. Uh, it didn't, this one didn't get fabulous reviews, but some of the ones, some of the positive reviews said things like unexpected, fast-paced, and well-acted, and a mix of genre potboiler and would-be human drama. I don't know. It just sounds kind of intriguing to me, and it's a pretty good cast. I, you know, I, I saw – you know this. I saw Robert De Niro walking down the street – in New York City yesterday. I just wish I had time to ask him, hey, how's that heist movie? But he was just, you know, uh, Rob, what was it like working with Mark Paul Gosseler? Rob Sweeney, who was also at, at, at the party, suggested you say, I loved you in heist. True, true. Which so. is maybe not something he's heard a lot of. Recently. Uh, not so, yet. Yeah. But now that we've recommended it here, let people know it's available. Maybe that'll start to change. So that's heist that is available now on VOD. Dave, did you bring those photos from our New Zealand trip? Uh-oh, I forgot them. Sorry. You know, he takes a lot of photos with his camera, and we never get to see them. I took a bunch of photos with my iPad. No, you just took one long video. Hey, that is the whole trip, man. You see everything. Well, why are you just eating white rice? I like to eat whatever I want to eat. Do I tell you what to eat? I don't even like Chinese food. Why don't you say something? We didn't have to come here. We could have gone somewhere else. I like this place. I took mom once. She didn't eat anything, though. Yeah, because she doesn't like Chinese food. I like it. It's great. On every episode of Film Spotting SVU, we let you choose our next review by voting on one of three options. And this time your choices were Danny Collins, uh, starring Al Pacino. Master of None, Aziz Ansari's new Netflix series, and Amora Fu, Jessica Hausner's deadpan film about a historical suicide pact. And Master of None was the runaway winner, maybe the biggest winner, the kind of most landslide winner we've had, at least one, one of the biggest that I can remember. It scooped up over 70% of the vote, leaving uh, the other two in the dust, but pretty neck and neck in the dust for whatever that's worth. Master of None is a comedy series that was created by Aziz Ansari and Alan Yang and stars Ansari in the lead role of Dev Shaw, a 30, 32-year-old 30, actor living in New York. The series spans a bit of time. Eric Wareheim, Kelvin Yu, and Lena Waithe play his friends. Aziz Ansari's real parents play his parents. And in general, the role features Ansari as kind of a less famous version of himself. The 10 episodes have an overall arc that concerns both how Dev gets a small role in a self-described black virus movie called The Sickening, and how he uh, eventually enters into a relationship with a girl named Rachel, played by Noelle Wells. But the episodes are also arranged around themes like parents having children, and how Indians are represented on TV, which allows the show to pull from Ansari's stand-up um, and kind of to take on larger issues while also covering around two years in Dev's life. So Matt, this show, I think, owes a debt to Louis and to Before Sunset by way of Top 5. But it's also its own thing, particularly in the issue-themed episodes. So I would love to know what you thought of them and how you how well this show really took on these kind of bigger issues like the elderly and the difference between men and women's experiences in such a straightforward manner. 
I thought the issue episodes, as you call them, uh, were probably the strongest, uh, honestly, of the, of the show. I thought the 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 episodes that were kind of like oh, a typical sort of like young now sort of early thirty, late twenty somethings dating. A lot of those didn't speak to me. Maybe it's just that that's not really where I'm at in my life right now. I don't know, but I just thought that they they seemed a little more generic and less specific and felt like they came from a less personal and i don't know just truthful place the ones that kind of took on those issues were the ones that really felt like they were speaking to something really like personal and intense and and beautiful honestly like there was like you know it was really you felt like you were seeing something you hadn't seen before but also something that was from the heart really and that was what i really kind of responded to the episodes with aziz's parents who've gotten a lot of praise uh, you know, his relationship with his father, played by his real father, um, that stuff was great. And the episode about the representations of, of Indians on TV, I thought was a really smart episode. And, you know, it like it wasn't preachy. It got at a really important topic, but it also wasn't just a, a black and white thing. I mean, they even sort of dug into the whole underlying issues about it and how – you know, the relatively good people can make bad decisions and how money can sometimes influence those decisions, all that sort of thing. And the other episode I thought was really good um, was the – I guess it's – you would call it an, an issue episode, I suppose, was the one about men and women. And I thought that was a really strong episode that seemed to to speak to something that we don't really see on, on sitcoms particularly, but just came from a place of, of honesty and integrity and, and – and sharpness, really sharp. That, that, and so I thought those were the best episodes, honestly. I, the, the, that was the stuff I really kind of enjoyed the most. I feel the other way, like exactly really? the opposite. I really liked the episodes about Dev's relationship and the kind of uh, the growth of it. And I really liked the way it went beyond their kind of cute, like falling in love episode right. into like general kind of early 30s malaise about right. like, fretting about the future. Uh, in terms, I mean, I, I think the parents episode is the best one in the series. I yeah. think it's fantastic. It's hard to argue. It's really just like funny and just devastating at points. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, as for some of the other ones, I, I really appreciated the ambition of the show mm-hmm. in taking them on. But there are times where it did feel like it was just kind of baldly laying out thoughts, especially actually the one you cited the one about men and women which i thought started off with such a like a really you had to love great, the opening right oh, the opening is fantastic okay. all right i mean the opening of this episode is one in which dev and his friend go home from a bar his male friend his male friend eric wareheim yes who seems to be just playing eric wareheim pretty much yes <laughs> dev and eric wareheim go home from the bar <laughs> and uh and then one of this actress he's working with on this commercial right. goes home by herself, herself by from herself, the same from bar, the same bar. And their walks home are like cut, contrasted. like compared and contrasted in a way that is like, it was like such a great spelling out of like this, like very normal experience and yes. how it differs for you if yes. you're a guy and if you're, right. if you're a Guys woman. walking home at night, they think nothing of it. The, right. the, the worst thing that could happen is stepping in dog poop. Oh exactly. no. Whereas this woman, woman could be literally like frightening. Stalked. Yes. This totally frightening. Right. They home. play horror movie music. Uh-huh. It's fantastic. It's really it's well done. Brilliant. And I, I, I just felt like later in the film where like there's more actual holding or later in the, sorry, later in the episode where there's more like holding forth on the topic explicitly. I didn't think it worked as well. It yeah. felt like stand up that was kind of like put into the mouths of characters. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But I do, I mean, I think that I really like that it tries to take on all of these episodes, all mm. of these ideas. 
I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff to like in the Indians on TV episode as well. I mean, it, that that also draws a lot from his stand-up. And I think in a way where he has a unique perspective to bring on this, that like that's not an issue that gets tackled on TV right. ever. I mean, I, I haven't watched any of Aziz Ansari's stand-up show, uh, specials. I've seen him on Parks and Rec, but I haven't seen his material. Are there, like, jokes that are straight-up recycled? Because you're keep saying... Uh, no, but, I mean, it's these are topics he's spoken okay. about at length. So, okay. you know, I think that... It's, it didn't feel like it was, like, directly... Right. I mean, I will say I did like... You're talking about the relationship between Dev and Rachel, and I did like yes. that stuff. I liked the, the later part of the season particularly that episode episode nine the one that's almost like kind of more it's it doesn't feel like a sitcom at all it feels like sort of a short film or something yeah and where I feel like it's, a few it, of these feel like short films more than they feel like episodes yes but that one had the least typical sitcom-y structure it, it really feels more like a short film where it's the this this couple kind of engaging in the same scenes basically but as they evolve over time and i thought that was that was really great and fascinating and again truthful like the whole dynamic between them and how she's really kind of messy and he's not i mean i don't want to suggest that someone in my marriage is very messy and (laughs) someone is not because the someone might listen to this and get upset she might be listening from the other room right now so i'm gonna talk a little more quietly but i just thought that that you know like that was that was a great episode the stuff the stuff more towards the early parts of their relationship where as you're saying it's sort of like very cutesy and uh bantery i mean some of it is funny i i i i I don't know it just seemed a little more just kind of cliche like sitcom-y or or romantic comedy kind of stuff that that, where it gets deeper and more intense and serious even though this is ostensibly a sitcom i guess when the the when it gets more real i think that's when i got more interested i guess it's interesting because i was talking about how oh i like this episode because it really got at something truthful and honest and this one where it gets more serious like i don't know if i've said this yet that while i like the show i did think it was a little uneven i thought some episodes were really strong some episodes were not so great i didn't find it all that super funny like i know it's like a sitcom with air quotes and it's a it's you know certainly structured in the sense that it's a half hour show and i didn't really laugh all that much i liked it i liked the characters but I just didn't really find it that funny, which is interesting that I could be like, oh, yeah, I really like this show, this comedy show that I didn't really I, – I don't know. How much – did you find yourself, like, laughing out loud a lot? Sometimes, but I feel like – I I don't know. Calling this a comedy, I feel like we call this a comedy because it's a half-hour series, and half-hour series are comedies. Well, but it has but, a lot of – I mean, there's a lot of, like, quips and jokes and things like that. I mean, I wouldn't – Sure, would but you... I feel like this is a comedy in the same way Louis is a comedy, you know? And Louis is a comedy that sometimes I think is very funny, but oftentimes I don't think right. aims well, to be Well, it's certainly – I mean, and this show definitely feels like it's it's, oh, yes. it's indebted in some way or Absolutely. in every possible way to, to Louis. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's 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 well made for what it is, and it's I don't know how about you, but certainly it's a New York show, and there's a lot of places like I've been, like they go to like bars that I've been to, oh, and, yeah. and, and so that's sort of fun too. I mean, it has a it has a nice authenticity to it in that sense as well. I Even appreciated. He has like a fabulous apartment. Well, that's I was just about, I was going like... to about to say. Well, he never. That was one of the interesting things I was wondering about was yeah, his apartment is gorgeous, and he never seems to worry about money at no. all, really. Which is odd because the whole show is about struggling actor Dev. Like, he doesn't seem to be struggling at all. I guess right. he's sort of maybe maybe he's struggling in the sense that he wants more from his career, but I guess he's doing okay financially. He does a lot of commercials. Yes. So he's not artistically fulfilled, but he can afford a sweet apartment. Right. And he's not sure he wants to be an actor, which I 
is the, is like the storyline I'm interested to see this show do more with. Yeah, I didn't know? really get that sense until they sort of well, they bring it, it up. in the beginning, and then it comes back towards the end. But I would have, I would have like liked stumbles to see... into it. Yeah. I yeah, I, I didn't too. feel that to me didn't feel like it was fleshed out quite enough. Maybe they just didn't have enough time, but sort of where that goes in the last episode felt to me a little bit out of nowhere um, and didn't feel quite as natural a progression as the relationship uh, between Rachel and Dev over the course of the season. I like that as the way it kind of evolved. And that's another thing that I liked about this show that is a little atypical. It's just the fact that characters, you know, it doesn't have to be, and don't get me wrong, I mean, I love Seinfeld, but Seinfeld's like every character needs to be in every episode, and they have to have something happening. They've got to have like an A plot, a B plot, a C plot, whatever. And in this one, you know, like Rachel is in the very first episode, but she's not in every episode. And and we get to see their uh, relationship evolve over the course of the 10 episodes, which I thought was really refreshing as well, that characters are allowed to kind of exist as people, as like the way people are in your lives, where you might not see someone for three months, and then you might reconnect and then see them every day for a week or something like that. Like, I liked that aspect of it as well. Right. Well, and also I, their relationship has this kind of nice raggedness of the way you might actually meet someone where you run into, like, beyond the kind of like very definitively anti-meat cute that is set up in the first episode, which involves having to go get a plan B pill. Right. That the kind of, timing of it where then he doesn't call her because that's weird because right. that was so weird and then he runs into her again and they have a really good time but then she's like she's starting seeing, like, someone, seeing else. someone else and like the kind of i mean like i i feel like that's something you don't see often in in film or tv because you usually don't have the space for that you know yeah. there's usually more of like a get a move on like get to the actual romance part right. and not the fact that like and also once you get there there's like a stasis that people just stick kind of stay right. in their roles you yes. know you know they just uh, jerry and elaine well they were dating in the past but now they're friends and that's the way it always stays and there's like one episode where they get back <laughs> together and they literally and they they literally never mention that again for the rest of the season it just it vanishes and here things have meaning they have you know things happen and they forever alter the course of the characters lives which is kind of one of the big themes that they're actually thinking about in that last episode. So that all kind of works together really nicely. When I say I wasn't laughing at, at the show, I mean, I laughed occasionally. I will say, though, that some of the things that I liked the least were like the really sitcom-y things, like that seal, the mm. robotic seal, which is apparently a real thing. I looked it up. Oh, yeah. It's like a therapy robot seal that is given to mentally ill patients to help them with like therapy all that didn't work for me. And then there's that whole thing with – I liked some of the stuff with Dev you know, trying to make it as a film actor. I liked. But then there's that episode where he befriends the star of the – Colin Salmon. Yeah. Who's a, playing himself in this very kind of like – I'm going to enjoy playing like the wackiest version of me possible. Yes. That's bakes. Uh, what is it? Cinnabons. Cinnabons yeah. And is and incredibly has... dumb and is right. Wants to write a screenplay that sounds horrible. I just thought all of that stuff fell totally flat. Yeah. I feel like this show is still over. Even the course of its season felt like Figuring it was, it it was out. working out its yeah. balance between like real naturalism. And then these like kind of like forced, more forced, uh, more very structured forced. arcs that yeah i would agree they i didn't think they worked very well yeah um i i you know i i i think eric wareheim does a good job directing the episodes because he's a director on the show i don't really i don't really know how i liked how he fit into this ensemble because he is sort of the the kramer of the bunch i guess 
and it seems like a role that would be well suited to him. But I found in practice it was almost him and Aziz together. It just seemed like two very – they look so different obviously. So there's that kind of fun of that. But their, their personalities just seem so similar and their, their, even their language, the way they would – they just shorten words randomly like their, their sort of patter. I don't know. It just seemed – they seemed too similar almost. It was like having the same character twice in certain scenes. And I liked Dev better bouncing off people who seemed a little different than him. Like when he meets characters who don't kind of share his like unique kind of worldview, his quirkiness, I found him more interesting. Like when he winds up sitting next to like H. John Benjamin, I liked those two characters a lot because that character seems so different than him. And we get to see that difference play out when it was him and Eric Wareheim. I – like, if, if you just told me, oh, Eric Wareheim's just going to direct next season, his character's going to kind of fade into the background, I would not be upset about that. See, I didn't mind Eric Wareheim any more than the others, but they definitely, like, Dev's group of friends, they all talk like him. They don't yeah. have, It feels you know, like one writer writing exactly. all these voices. And they ha- they're, they're three, like, likable performers. Absolutely. But they all tend to just sound like him like just clones of him in different bodies yeah a little bit <laughs> um i will say i i, I get the feeling eric wareheim's character is a stand-in for harris Whittles, who oh who uh is credited on this with like mm-hmm. some story things and is credited in the credits even though he passed away uh, yeah you know earlier this year and i i feel like i wonder if that's part of like the kind of slight weirdness of that is that in the same way that kelvin Yu is playing the show's co-creator, you essentially, know, right. Alvin Yang, essentially, yeah. that like that is who that character is supposed to be a stand-in for. I hadn't thought about that, but I guess it's possible. Yeah. Uh, well, it, I mean, if that's the case, that's a shame. It, but it, it doesn't. It doesn't change the observation. Yeah. Right. That it still it yeah. just doesn't quite. It does. It just doesn't quite work. And again, those are the moments that feel so the most sitcommy. And to me, those are the moments that work the least well. I, I feel like when it goes when it leans more into that short film kind of angle and really and and doing something different than the typical that's where it really shines when it's when it's talking about these ideas but still in kind of a funny way that was the stuff i I like the best well let's talk about the parents episode very quickly okay um the the ways in which both of the like the flashes back into their oh man like i just i felt like it was just like ripping my heart out it was very funny too but like just just ripping my heart out, like, for both of them. That was a really beautiful half hour of television yeah. in every way. The way it's structured, the, the, the humor, the flashbacks, the, the poignance without being, you know, maudlin or too overly schmaltzy. Uh, just perfect. And, and, and the way, too, that those characters sort of appreciate their parents but also, you know, don't entirely share their experiences and their worldviews and everything. It's just smart, really smart. And yeah. awesome. Yeah. And I, I think that Ansari's parents are just really funny, especially yeah. his dad. His dad is Well, like, yeah, his mom doesn't seem super comfortable on, no. on, on, in front of the camera. His dad looks like he is having the time of his yes. life. And he is just so fun. He's, He's so, so fun. much fun. Yeah. You know, I like as the child of first generation immigrants, like I, th- that episode, and I'm sure this happened for a lot of people, like immediately made you call your parents. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think there's a lot in that too, as well about like the kind of having to pry stories out of your parents about their like very different mm. lives. I, you know, I think has definitely been true to my experience. Right. And, uh, 
yeah i just that that episode is just delightful i'll say this i mean we've discussed a lot of netflix shows on this on this podcast some of them we really like some of them we're much more mixed on i feel like this one is a, is a promising one i would definitely be excited to see a season two of master of none for sure yeah and i think it you know i think a lot of the things that we've talked about as and i like the show a lot overall a lot of the things we've talked about as weaknesses are just things that feel like it'll it'll it's the kind first of season. yeah it'll play out and kind of like figure out in a second season right like seinfeld the first 10 episodes of seinfeld i'll say it we're not as good as the first 10 episodes of master or none like uh-huh. there you go just think about that so absolutely a, a good recommendation from both of us that is master of none the uh, first season 10 episodes all streaming right now on netflix All right, as we are sitting here in my apartment recording this, it is November 22nd. It's my wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm spending it talking to you. <laughs> I feel like just literally what, have nothing to just say to what that. I, just what I want to be doing. Nothing to say to that at all. <laughs> no, my, my wife and I are going to hang out after this. But anyway, the more important thing about that date is that it is mere days from when we have to start filling out our end of the year ballots you know different critics groups different polls allison is now a member of the prestigious new york film critics circle is that the right okay that is correct and they you have very early awards i'm sure coming up very soon you've december got december 2nd so you've got 10 days basically or so to to cram it all in and I'm a member of the Online Film Critics Society, which our voting starts like a couple days after that. So we are running rapidly out of time. So this is the time of year when we are mostly – when we're not doing anything else, we are watching movies. We are watching screeners, online screeners. Sometimes now actually Netflix has a lot of things to yeah. catch up with uh, and even Hulu as well and Amazon Prime. So that's what we're doing, and that's why that's why we're recommending movies we're watching because that's what we're doing right now. We honestly do not have time to go back and rewatch old movies because this is what we are doing when we're not watching Master of None is we are watching uh, movies from 2015. So we're going to recommend some of the ones we've seen so far that we caught up with recently and liked. Allison, you want to go first? Sure. We'll start off with a movie that I actually did recently rewatch, but it is one that I've, I've seen before, but it is one that I, I really do hope – and suspect will be part of the year-end conversation. And it is... The Cobbler. Tangerine. Oh. Which is available for rent right now. That's my second guess. Uh, it's directed by Sean Baker, who's done other kind of naturalist slices of life, like uh, Takeout and Prince of Broadway and Starlets. And uh, there's definitely this kind of aura of this movie. Like, there's like being a bit of a stunt. You know, it was shot on an iPhone five, something they announced after it screened at Sundance. Not even the five S not, I don't think it was a five S wow. maybe, maybe it was a five S <laughs> being a jerk. Continue, please. And like whatever phone was out in like <laughs> late 2014, um, mid 2014, uh, it has two first time lead actors, uh, and, you know, I, I think that that gives this feeling of like, I don't know, a certain disposability or yeah, like stunt likeness to it. But it's not. It is hilarious and raunchy and rowdy and sad. And it is also a Christmas movie, which, you know, is, is something that I think as it sinks in becomes 
very funny and and kind of a, a, an excellent touch. And uh, the leads, Kitana Kiki Rodriguez and Maya Taylor, are both trans women, playing trans women. In this case, uh, two working girls who uh, look for clients on a strip of Santa Monica Boulevard in Los Angeles that also has a, a donut store called Donut Time, which is where the movie starts and ends. Um, and there's something very smart about this movie in the ways in which both of its lead actors perform, uh, like kind of lean into stereotypes, kind of like pop pop culture stereotypes about how like trans sex workers behave and how they look, um, especially Rodriguez, who plays Cinderella uh, and who is like fresh out of jail at the start of the movie and who is someone who just kind of goes through life like turned up to 11 uh, all the time but as this movie goes on these the, like these two kind of lead characters just like strip away all of those all of kind of the the assumptions that come surrounding their characters and find not just this humanity underneath but this real sense that that they're kind of performing because it's it's a way to kind of armor up that like beneath the performance is a total knowledge that this is a lifestyle that's difficult that's dangerous and you know that also is really lonely and this is a movie that for all that it's extremely like it, it's about uh how Cindy goes looking for uh the fish the the cis woman who has been having an affair with her her fiance while she's been in jail goes looking for her and finds her and pulls her down the street with it by her hair uh it is also about this friendship between these two women and it's about how they they kind of they have to depend on each other in this world that like gives them so little support otherwise so it's uh it's just so kind of deftly made in the way that it kind of travels through the streets of this neighborhood that's uh, like a kind of forgotten stretch of Los Angeles that is not glamorous at all, but that has its own established, like, economy. Um, and this also has, like, a great uh, kind of intersecting storyline involving a cab driver, an Armenian cab driver, who uh, likes to use the girls' services, but also has a family at home and who, who are kind of like impatiently waiting for him and don't understand why he isn't fully engaged um, because he has, you know, this kind of other secret life. And the scene in which he runs into Maya Taylor's character and she's so happy to see him because she knows that he's a good client. There almost, there's almost this fondness to it, even though, it is like a totally transactional relationship. I think is one of the most complicated depictions of of that kind of of like all of the layers that are going on in their relationship in such a short amount of time in this this scene that involves like a you know a sex act in a car wash. And I think that whole sequence is just like so kind of so intelligent in approaching these characters and the kind of power dynamic that goes on between the two of them and the kind of genuine and the kind of genuine rapport that just comes from knowing someone, even if it's in these these circumstances. So this is a film I like a lot, and I think that it's a real achievement how it was kind of shot out in the streets with a real like sense of stripping away a lot of the artifice of filmmaking. Um, and I, you know, if this is a movie that has sounded kind of 
like I've mentioned, like a stunt to you. It's, I, I really urge you to check it out because I do not think it is one at all. I think it's got a real heart to it and a real kind of weight to it underneath this seemingly kind of outrageous basic storyline. That is Tangerine, and it is available for rent everywhere. That is the uh, the number one movie on my uh, screener pile right now. That uh-huh. is the top of the pile. That's the next one I'm looking forward to watching. I've heard so many great things about it. Uh, so I'm hopefully by the next time, the next episode of this podcast, I will have seen it. Uh, my first pick is probably the movie I would say that while I've been going through and catching up with stuff is probably m- my favorite movie I've seen so far. It's not my favorite movie of the year, but it's probably my favorite thing that I've sort of found while going back and catching up with all these movies that I hadn't seen yet. And it is called Experimenter, directed by Michael Almereda, that is available now for rent. And uh, this time of year, often referred to by film critics as award season or Oscar season, but I think you could also call it biopic season because this is the time of year when actors and actresses often make a bid for those awards by playing a real person because I think we can agree on this, Allison. Nothing says acting more than gaining 25 pounds, putting on a wig, and imitating the voice of a famous person. Oh, yeah. Maybe some old age makeup as well. Yes. If you can put that in there as well. An accent. Oh, an accent. All These are all, these all equal good acting oscar gold yes i'm being obviously i'm being a little snarky here but there and then and there are still some good biopics don't get me wrong but the sheer number of these sort of serious kind of stodgy well acted but very formulaic biographies every year so many around this time of year it just becomes a little numbing and i think that's what i responded to in experimenter which was that it's a good movie, but it's also an unusual movie, an unusual biopic. And at this time of year, in late November, it really feels like a breath of fresh air. It's just nice to see it. Uh, it stars Peter Sarsgaard as this famous psychologist, Stanley Milgram, who in 1961 conducted what's one of the most famous psychology experiments of all time, what's now known as the Milgram Experiment – If you're unfamiliar with the Milgram experiment, it involved putting a test subject in a room, and in the next room, there's a confederate who is supposedly strapped to a machine that's delivering electric shocks, and the test subject is supposed to administer a quiz, and for each wrong answer, this uh, test subject, who's called the teacher, uh, is supposed to give the student, who is actually a plant, who's put there by Milgram, an electric shock, and the The teacher, the the subject of the experiment, thinks he's part of an experiment designed to test the effect of negative reinforcement on learning. But actually the whole thing is designed to test someone's willingness to inflict harm on another person just because an authority figure tells them to do so. And there is definitely a traditional biopic to be made about this guy and this subject. I could, like, envision it, Uh, you know, young Stanley Milgram, uh, maybe, like, as as a child his father disciplined him and gave him an electric shock just to know how it feels and that was the moment where he was in space like ah well and also world war ii happens and well whatever a lot of reasons to to, to kind of look at why people follow look, terrible things this in is my terrible stanley milgram biopic sure. you can have your own terrible stanley sure, milgram sure. biopic but that's not what experimenter is it actually starts with the milgram experiment And then it kind of broadens out, and you have Peter Sarsgaard repeatedly breaking the fourth wall, talking directly to the audience. And it's almost as if the movie is another one of his tests, and he's administering it to the viewer. And I think one of Milgram's ultimate takeaways from all of his experiments that comes across in the film is this idea that there are some things that are just inherently ingrained in human nature, including our inclination to sort of bow to authority. 
even when it veers into this territory that we know is wrong. We know the thing that we're doing is wrong. But when someone tells us to do it, we find uh, we, a lot of people, find it very hard to say no. But Milgram also believed that kind of the way you can get around that is when you make people aware that these ingrained instincts exist. So to that end, there's all these weird, unusual devices in the movie that are they're there sort of inexplicably. There's very fake-looking process shots where they're driving in cars and you go, they're, that's obviously not a real car. They're not sitting you – know, they're sitting on a soundstage. There are several unexplained cameos by a, an elephant that just wanders through the backgrounds of, of some shots, and they don't mention it. They don't explain it. They don't comment on it. And to me, I was like – the, these moments are almost like the shocks right, in the experiment. And the movie is the test, and the audience is the test taker, and the director, uh, Michael Armareda, who also made the Ethan Hawke Hamlet, that's sort of his – the movie that he's best known for. It, he doesn't – it's like he doesn't want the audience to sit passively and watch this. I think he wants to make you aware of what he's doing, the same way that Milgram wanted people to be sort of aware of these ingrained concepts. It's like he wants engaged viewers the same way Milgram wanted engaged Humans, And I thought that was kind of a great way to make a biopic that embodies some of the ideas of the subject. So an interesting movie. This one has uh, stuck with me. It surprised me. It's not flashy. Peter Sarsgaard not going to be nominated for an Academy Award. I don't think he wears a wig. He doesn't – maybe he does a little bit of an accent. He does have a silly beard for like half the movie. But it's just not the kind of movie that's designed to rack up awards. But it, it's – it's 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 a smart, interesting, unusual biopic. So that's Experimenter, and that is available right now for rent. Yeah, it's not one that I liked as much as you did, but I did really enjoy the the whole part where he is doing the the original Milgram experiments, which are fascinating, disturbing things to see reenacted and just to see to think about in general it's fun there's a lot of uh, cameos from actors you'll recognize playing some of these test subjects which i didn't spoil any of but it's kind of cool when they pop up too yeah um all right well my next pick is a movie that has been just like on my list of something to watch for a long time now and i think i've even brought it up in a behind the eight ball segment in an episode earlier but it is a movie called blind which is currently available on fandor a Norwegian film uh, written and directed by Eskil Voigt, and it stars Ellen Dorit Peterson as Ingrid, a woman who recently in life became blind and because of it has kind of retreated to the apartment she shares with her husband and spends all her day alone while uh, Morton, which is his name, is at work, just kind of refusing to venture out herself just uh, spending her days kind of learning to navigate the apartment but also kind of sort of resolving to to never leave again and just basically kind of torturing herself with thoughts of the future though we only slowly start to understand this the thing that is really remarkable about this film which i liked a lot is the ways in which it puts us in ingrid's subjective experience in the beginning very specifically by showing us the ways in which she still practices envisioning things, even though she's been told that that kind of like that part of her brain will kind of stop working because she no longer sees things, takes in visual, visual kind of information. But it also, it shows us her memories and her things that she's just imagining and never notifies us right away that this is a subjective reality or not even reality at all. 
And the film introduces these two side characters, one named Aelin, who is a single mother, and one named Einar, who is this lonely bachelor who lives across the way from Aelin and is kind of looks at her um, it, through, the, through the window sometimes. And they're inserted into the story and we kind of learn about their lives and don't understand until like fairly far into the movie that maybe they're not real, that maybe actually they are creations of, they're fictional creations that uh, Ingrid has been kind of bringing in to express her fears that her husband is going to leave her, that her husband is not going to want to continue a relationship with someone who is both blind and depressed, clearly depressed. Um, her fears about like the family that they had been kind of ex planning to have, but now she thinks maybe they shouldn't have. Um, and her fears that he doesn't find her desirable anymore. And the, the movie just so delicately kind of introduces through this, through these characters, all of her dreads about kind of being alone and like in, in the form of like Einar's life, being alone and having no connections and also being kind of treated as an outcast because you're alone. And through, through, through Aelin, she kind of basically imagines an affair that her husband could have. And it all starts to break down in a way that just then allows the film to kind of delve into its character's psychology and to also delve into the fact that like some of these fears come from, from the fact that she is this, you know, blonde beautiful woman who has always kind of felt very secure in her place in society and in her place as like you know uh, a wife and potential mother and all of these things and I just I was so impressed by the ways by how the movie brings up all of these themes and lets them seep around the uh, around the kind of like around the corners um due to through these invented characters and through the ways in which uh, reality is kind of spongy in the story. Uh, and then the movie also has this like, this introduces this interesting idea in which Ingrid is sure that her husband maybe doesn't go out sometimes, that he pretends to leave for work and then stays in the apartment and watches her. And that the kind of it's not even necessarily fear but that she she is worried that like it's an expression of either that he doesn't trust her anymore or it's an expression of care but that is convinced she can no longer kind of trust her own senses in that way and all of that dread that she has to depend on someone else to maybe tell her that her dress looks okay to, that she would have to depend on that like also kind of seeps into the story she's telling um it's a really great little movie and one that you know got a really small release and came out on fandor simultaneously i think in september and it's a movie that i'd heard really good things about on the festival circuit so i was i was very glad to finally get around to see it uh, see it and i kind of wish i had got, had time to see it earlier it's one that i really urge you to seek out especially if you have fandor and can stream it that is blind and you can stream it now uh, you're just recommending all these movies that I, this is great because it's movies I have to still see. So this is this podcast is useful for me, and I'm actually on it. So that's fantastic. My next pick is a documentary. It's a documentary about an event I did not even know existed before I 
at least heard about this film. The film is called Best of Enemies. It's directed by Robert Gordon and Morgan Neville, who is the director of 20 Feet from Stardom. This movie is available right now for rent. And the event that it chronicles are these televised debates from 1968 between Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley Jr. And these debates took place on ABC television, which at the time was the lowly third-rated national network way behind CBS and NBC. And ABC was so sort of cash-strapped that they couldn't even afford to broadcast basically the entire 1968 Democratic and Republican National Conventions, which was how the other networks were doing it. So to instead, to compete, what they did was they put on like a nightly highlight show, and they included Vidal and Buckley debates in these shows as an effort to drum up ratings, and it worked. Arguably, it maybe worked too well because, as the movie sort of argues, this is kind of the moment where objective or at least objective-esque, objective-ish reporting and network news first gave way to opinion-driven talking heads and the sort of angry bickering that is now part and parcel of 24-7 news channels. Um, you know, they're, they're called debates, but really they're just insult contests, essentially, between these two men who legitimately despised one another. Gore Vidal, this novelist, intellectual of the left wing, and Buckley, who is one of the pioneers of the modern conservative movement. And they each, they were perfect for one another. The title is, a, it's a perfect title because they really represented what the other person despised in America and what was changing about America in those days. And they were also both very smart. They were very quick-witted. And it was so it was just ideal television because they would just yell at each other. You know, they're they are supposed to be like debating, I guess, like the candidates, the parties, the, whose chances of winning. But at least what we see in the film, they're basically not that far removed from like your mama battles. Like they're just basically taking pot shots at each other the whole time. So it, it's not exactly classy or stimulating, but it is it's fabulous television. It's really entertaining. I don't know if I would go so far as to say it's a great movie. I think if there was more of the actual debates, maybe it could have been a great movie. My big complaint about this movie, although I would recommend it, is that I didn't get quite enough of the actual Vidal and Buckley debates. And I got a little too much like the talking heads, modern footage. I think the archival stuff is fantastic. The new stuff, people explaining why we should care about it is kind of overkill. Uh, the context, content balance is a little off, and I, I feel like I would have enjoyed the movie more if I could have seen the debates and sort of sussed out why they were so important for myself rather than being told why they were so important. But still, the actual original debates are really fascinating and very entertaining and I think kind of worth the price of admission on their own. Even if I didn't love this movie, it won't be on my top ten list. It is a movie I would recommend people checking out, both for what it's about, but also how it, it does sort of relate to our modern political moment. It certainly has plenty of things to say about that as well. So that is Best of Enemies, and that is currently available for rent. All right, now it's time for the segment that Allison can't remember and Matt can't say. So let's just talk about new movies. How about that? Yes. So here's the thing. There's a, it's Thanksgiving weekend coming up, so obviously this is a big time of year for movies. There's a bunch of movies coming out. Weirdly, two of the three big movies have, haven't even screened yet as we're recording this, which is pretty unheard of, especially since one of them is a Pixar movie, 
which are they're usually the gold standard of animation. At this point, neither of us has seen it. Allison is going to see it before it comes out. I'm not even sure I will be able to make it to a screening. I haven't been invited to a screening. It's pretty unusual. It seems like they are maybe hiding it a little bit. I mean, they, they, this is the. I mean, the Good Dinosaur is. They pushed it back troubled. like a whole year yeah. and a half. They kind it's of they troubled. recast it, the voice cast. Sounds right? like they basically rewrote the entire movie. Right. And, you know, I, Pixar is not – Pixar has its troubled projects as well. You remember? They had one project they even scrapped entirely. That's right. And, I mean, Ratatouille was a movie that was troubled in its quote-unquote in its production and came out pretty well. So right. that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Right. And the trailers for this look totally tear-jerky Pixar. Yes, you know? absolutely. Oh, yeah. They're um, definitely steering into that cry Pixar thing oh, yeah. real hard. Real hard. Um, but it is true. Oh, usually. Especially when a movie's coming out on a Wednesday because of Thanksgiving. Uh, they, they unusual usually, to have right. not had well, screenings. But. And also, usually, like, I mean, Pixar movies aren't hidden away. Right. Like, especially an original Pixar like this that yeah. is not like Cars 2, that they usually want people to see it because critics love Pixar movies. Right. So Pixar. make of that what you will. Yeah. The I'm other not, movie, yeah. probably not as surprising that they I'm haven't not screened, at all. is Victor Frankenstein with Daniel Radcliffe as Igor. And James McAvoy as Victor Frankenstein. You know how sometimes movies seem out of place, like uh, Southpaw, how it was released in the summer and it seemed yes. weirdly placed in the summer. Yes. This movie feels weirdly placed in the fall. Like it just. <laughs> when would you put it? Like it late, seems like, late January, yeah, early February, or, or or like August. Like it seems like a kind of early August movie. But you want to see it though, don't? don't I pretend. totally want to see it. Now, what is the hook of this? It's Victor Frankenstein. Does that mean it's about how he got the first name Victor? Why is it called Victor Frankenstein? What is it about? What makes it different than every? Every other Frankenstein movie, do we know? I think, I mean, I thought the big thing was that Igor is like now, it's like a buddy comedy practically. So then why is it called Victor Frankenstein and not Igor? I don't think it's necessarily, Igor's still the sidekick. That seems like a weird name to like, I mean, God knows, I would love, I would love a movie that is just about Igor and like... (laughs) <laughs> poor Igor. I don't Even know. when he's played by Daniel Radcliffe, he gets no respect. This poor man. Well, so the one movie, though, we have seen, we've both seen, the other big movie of this coming week is Creed. It's the seventh Rocky film. Uh, it is uh, It is sort of a sequel slash spinoff. Rocky is in the film. He's now basically playing the Mickey figure. He's the trainer. And the new Rocky, essentially, the new underdog boxer, is played by Michael B. Jordan. He's this character... Well, we first meet him as Donnie Johnson. He's this sort of tough kid who uh, he wants to become a boxer like his dad. And his dad turns out to be Apollo Creed, the famous world champion who Sylvester Stallone famously fought in Rocky 1 and 2. You're missing one point, though. He likes to fight. He always liked to fight before he ever knew who his dad was. That is a fair point. That is a fair point. He's we don't got boxing s- in his blood. That's the, not a spoiler. I guess it all happens in the, it's the first scene. Yes. Fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, Allison, what did you think of Creed? I thought it was terrific. Yeah. It's a really, it's just like such a satisfying film that I, I think figures out, a, you know, we are in an age of sequels now. And mm-hmm. this figures out, I think, about as perfect a sweet spot as you can find between paying like tribute to the movies that came before, particularly the first Rocky. Yeah. And figuring out a way to do something new and to kind of attach this to a new character who's not just like basically young black Rocky. This is not like this is a new like his character's background. I think there's some surprises there that I won't give away, even though it's all early in the morning, early in the movie. But that I think it comes up with a characterization for him that really 
runs counter to Rocky's origins in ways that are, I think, lend an interesting angle to the movie. I uh, I agree. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge Rocky fan. I I think the first movie is great, and I like a, a bunch of the sequels too. And I would say this is right up there with amongst the the best movies in the franchise. Not as good as the original Rocky, but I I, I agree with what you said. It is it it gives you everything you want from a Rocky movie, but it does it in often like unexpected and surprising ways like of course there's going to be a training montage right and of course we're going to hear the the theme song but we don't hear it as much as we think we're going to and the steps you know the rocky steps the uh, of the philadelphia museum of art we see them but not quite how you expect to see them i know i was surprised how they use that as well it's like it understands exactly what people want to see in this kind of movie and it and it satisfies you in the way that a Rocky movie should without just being a slavish rehash. And I agree with you that uh, uh, Donnie, uh, he is not exactly Rocky, right? He that that like he's an underdog, of course, and he has a fight with like an improbably great champion that you wouldn't, you know. It's the structure is the same, but his journey there is different, and even the romance he has. Not only is it different than Rocky and Adrian, it's just so. Unlike so many sort of typical romances in in most movies with the typical, you know, the meet cute and the ugly, like I guess they sort of meet cute ish. Yeah, I mean, but it's it just it's not it's it's not the typical, it's not the usual, and it's done with a lot of intelligence. And I thought the two actors, Tessa Thompson and Michael B. Jordan, they were I thought they had a lot of chemistry together. They were sexy, frankly, together. Yeah, and the movie goes out of its way. To not just treat her as an accessory to his story. Absolutely. Like she is a character who has her own life. In fact, like the kind of any, like the trouble in their relationship is that she has her own life. So to the extent which she's like, I don't know if I have time for you. Right. And I loved that. Yeah. Like I loved seeing that introduced. And she's not just a, you know, mousy girl who doesn't realize she's beautiful or whatever, which I'm not, you know, saying that that's necessarily wrong. I mean, that's great in Rocky, but we didn't need to see. You know, another character fall in love with the exact same woman, just like the next generation. Like it is it's a different story in the same world. And we should say Sylvester Stallone is awesome in this movie as Mickey. He is as as Rocky, but he's playing the Mickey figure. He is. And it's like the best thing he's done in a long time. I know. You know, no one was predicting that he could get an Oscar nomination. But don't you think that he might now? I could. I mean, I have no idea what the supporting race is like. But I mean, I could. I would not be unhappy if that happens. He's great. And I think it's a great story because he hasn't been nominated for an Oscar since the original Rocky. So you know how the the Oscar voters and that whole world loves a good story like that. They love a narrative like that, I think. It's a comeback story worthy of a Rocky movie, frankly. So wow. I, would, I think that that would be kind of kind of cool. And uh, he's he's awesome. One more thing I will say is that you know now uh, you've got like a black lead, black love interest, and black director and writer in this. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know with the original Rocky, which is all positioned in this kind of like this like white white flight Philadelphia that had like at the time a lot of racial unease, mm-hmm. and like the movie for all that Rocky himself never cares or seems to notice like he's positioned like the reason he's picked is this kind of great white hope like sure you know character and like and i feel like this movie kind of like gently counters that Mm. like undercurrent in the first movie without ever having being explicit about race in any like you know by just offering up 
you know, this cast of characters who are majority of color, including all the background players, which reflects like a Philadelphia that is now majority black. Yeah. And does it without comment in a way that I, I loved. Yeah. Like it's done so fantastically. I think it's a really satisfying movie. It's a it's a very worthy tribute and successor to Rocky. So that's uh, two very strong recommendations from us for Creed. Let's move on to Behind the Eight Ball where we count down some new releases on streaming. We give you two listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And we also give you one film that we've each chosen blindly by number from each other's my lists. Allison, who would, who's going first? I'm going to let you decide. You I'm going to go, go first. You're going to go first. I'm going to go you first. You sure? Yeah. You're positive. I'm positive. All right, fine. If that's what you want, that's, that's what's what going to happen. Want. All right, so let's start with three new releases. All right, first up, new to Fandor, all... 12 hours and I think 41 minutes of out one. <laughs> Strap in. Yes. Jacques Rivette's, uh for a long time, almost impossible to see epic set in 1970. I saw this movie over the course of four days at BAM. Where they, How many where hours had, is it? It's just under 13 hours. So it's like a season of House of Cards. It is. It's a season of House of Cards. Um, but I saw it over four days at BAM, uh, where they had like a theatrical run. Its first ever theatrical run, unsurprisingly, a in thirteen hours. In ever. general, ever. Oh wow! Unsurprisingly, a thirteen-hour movie is wildly impractical for a theater to show. Right. So this is technically its its theatrical release, I think, and uh, I really enjoyed it. I I feel like it is an extraordinarily difficult movie to watch at home or on streaming. But if you are able to do it. I, you know, God bless and I salute you. I will say this about it. It, uh, I mean, it's hard to describe what this movie is about. Among other things, it's about experimental theater troops and a conspiracy. But, and also Balzac. <laughs> For 12 hours and 40 minutes. Yes. I will say this. If you try this movie, the first three hours are the hardest. <laughs> This actually does sound like a Netflix series. The first five hours are really slow, but Absolutely. stick with it because then after about hour eight, it gets really good. Yeah, I, that holds true. I, this is not a movie that is paced like it, it's divided into eight episodes, but it's not paced in episodes. It is paced like one long movie. In okay. Which the first three to four hours are like it's all set up. Yes, set up. I mean, I really want to see. I'm a very envious that you were able to go spend four days in a movie theater watching this. I would have loved to have do, done that. I just didn't have the time. And knowing myself, I don't know. I'm going to be able to watch it on streaming, but I don't know if I'm going to actually be able to like focus it on it. It is hard. I, the first <laughs> – this is a movie – it was like uh, a lot of improv, a lot of scenes of just like the theater groups doing improv, like an improv exercise like improv that goes games. on – for like 40 unbroken minutes. Oh my God. Uh, especially in the first Man. two episodes or three episodes. That said, I like this, like as it comes together, I thought it was fantastic. The end is fantastic, but it's out there streaming on. It's Fandor. out one there. It's out one there streaming on Fandor. And if you dare, Good please, luck. please let us know. How yeah, it goes. That, I, I really want to know because I, you know, I feel like it would be a very different experience watching it at home and streaming. And I would love to know if, if you're able to do it. Everyone who anyone who sits through the whole thing, and I don't know how they would prove it, but maybe if they prove it and email us, they'll get a special salute on the show. That's my that's my vow. All right. Um, also, also new to streaming, the We and the I is now streaming on Amazon Prime. That's Michelle Gondry's 2012 film uh, about a group of teenagers who are riding the bus home from high school on the last day of school. 
shot in the South Bronx with real teenagers. It's a movie that, you know, I was critically well received, but also just such a small movie. It kind of came and went, you know, no stars in it. Not an obvious Gondry movie, though it has some Gondry touches. And uh, one that, you know, you, you should check out now that it's on streaming. The We and the I on Amazon Prime. And finally, new to Netflix is Call Me Lucky. This is Bobcat Goldthwaite's doc from a little earlier this year about fellow comedian Barry Crimmins, who is this kind of angry, political, says exactly what's on his mind kind of comedian. Uh, someone who is very locally famous and famous among other comedians, but that you, like the rest of the world, maybe doesn't know. I had never heard of him before this. And the movie is just this great portrait of him, both in terms of his comedy, which obviously didn't always win him friends, but also in terms of his kind of like very difficult childhood and his kind of experiences with abuse and how he goes on to kind of speak up against abuse and a bit against child pornography. And it's a very... It's it's both a very fond story, it's, uh, but it's about a very prickly person in ways that are, uh, I, I really appreciated. Um, and that's Call Me Lucky. It is now streaming on Netflix. Okay. How about two listener recommendations? All right. First up, we have one from Joe from Astoria who writes, congrats on almost 100 SVU episodes. Keep them coming. I wanted to give a big recommendation to With Bob and David on Netflix, a.k.a. new episodes of Mr. Show. I was surprised by how many fans of that brilliant sketch show I've spoken to who didn't know about these new episodes or that they're here to stream. They are hysterical. For anyone who hasn't seen Mr. Show, and you really should, it's an amazing sketch show with David Cross and Bob Odenkirk from the late 90s. With Bob and David has the same format, with sketches bleeding into and calling back to each other in surreal and hilarious ways. It's always smart, entertaining, and unpredictable, and each of the new episodes has some truly laugh-out-loud sketches. Episode 4, in particular, is a comedic masterstroke as far as I'm concerned, so hopefully we get more episodes soon. He then gave like a bunch of out of context quotes to give a preview. I won't, I don't think I can do them justice. I'll read one, which is I once sold brushes. I had 10 in my kit, came back with 12 brushes. That was my worst day. I actually <laughs> bought two brushes <laughs> and got a laugh out of that. That's, that's a good line. There you go. So if that, there is a recommendation for you if there ever was one. Um, and yeah, you know, I think that. Uh, Netflix has three original series out. We didn't even Oof. mention Jessica Jones, which is now out. Now, uh, you know, I haven't and had I time to watch it yet. I haven't either. I watched a little bit of with Bob and Duke because I'm a, a huge Mr. Show fan. I, have, I think I even saw them live when they went on tour about a decade ago. And uh, it's great. It feels like Mr. Show is back. And I haven't watched the whole thing yet, but I was able to squeeze out uh, some time to watch like two or three episodes. And it's really good. I'm really enjoying it. I'm glad. I'm glad to have new. It's Mr. Show. I'm just going to say good to have Mr. <laughs> Show back. All right, and second recommendation, just a short one from Twitter, but a very good one from Paul Landriau, who wrote, Yo, M&A, I just found out that about Tubi TV, T-U-B-I TV, and I think you should talk about it. It could be a major player. Cheers. Tubi TV is a new streaming site. Uh, I just poked around it very quickly, but it's an ad-supported site, and it's got a bunch of movies on it, mm -hmm. uh, including, for your Thanksgiving viewing, Pieces of April. A solid Thanksgiving indie. It's also got a whole section that is labeled not on Netflix. So mm. that's always interesting. It's got some big movies I'm on looking there. at it right now. It looks pretty interesting. Yeah, it's got some significant titles on there. Yeah. And, you know, we have, I think, discussed that 
uh, Netflix is less focused on its kind of movie acquisitions at the moment, Absolutely. and Hulu has kind of stepped up big time. But it looks like there's also some new players on the on the field. And they are interested in movies as well. Yeah, this is interesting. So take a look at that. Tubi TV, T-U-B-I-T-V. And thank you for that recommendation, Paul. Yeah, that's a good one. I'm looking at it. I'm, look, I'm just looking at what's trending on the site. That's the first list, like the first kind of scrolly list of movies. And boom, Crank came up, the original Crank. Your so favorite. You have my attention, Tubi TV. You have my attention. All right, how about one film chosen blindly by number from your my list you gave me number 39 which is actually a movie that i've watched recently i didn't realize it was still on my my list it is creep uh the plot description when a videographer answers a craigslist ad for a one-day job in a remote mountain town he finds his client is not at all what he initially seems directed by patrick bryce who also did the film the overnight uh he wrote and co-stars in it with Mark Duplass, who the you know omnipresent Mark Duplass. He no longer needs an introduction. He no longer needs we an know who he is. Uh, it, it, this is a found footage movie. It's I think very unsettling at points. It's got a great kind of just uh, hard to pin down Mark Duplass performance. I didn't love it. I think that it kind of it feels as kind of ragged and improved as I'm sure it was. But if you're a fan of found footage and kind of want to see someone do something, I think fairly smart with it on the scale of, on the scale of found footage, uh, I, I think it pulls off something, something not bad. Um, so that is creep, and it's number thirty-nine nine on my my list. But I'm I'm gonna take it off. I think. <laughs> All right, Matt, are you ready? You're not saving it for a rainy day no. just to watch it again. Okay. Yes, I'm ready. All right, three new releases. Okay, first up, Woody Allen's I would say last great movie, at least at this moment, from 2011. It's Midnight in Paris, starring Owen Wilson as a screenwriter who discovers he can travel back in time to 1920s Paris. It's a melancholic movie about the beauty but also the danger of romanticizing nostalgia and looking back at the expense of seeing what's uh, nice and wonderful right in front of you. An idea that definitely has some cultural currency these days. Actually, I think something like Creed actually shows why it's important not just to look to the past, for example. Other films maybe don't do that quite so well. So that's Midnight in Paris. That is streaming right now on Amazon Prime. Next up, also available on Amazon Prime, a classic rom-com starring Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn from 1957. It's Desk Set. Hepburn is a research librarian for a TV network. Tracy is the man who's created a new advanced electronic brain or computer. That's supposed to help increase the network's efficiency, and like a lot of Hepburn and Tracy's work, it's this lively battle of the sexes, and the two of them are sparring back and forth verbally a lot of the time, and frankly, there are a few things in the history of movies I find more pleasurable than watching Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn sort of flirt and try to outdo one another. I, I, I love all of their movies. That's Desk Set, available now on Amazon Prime, and finally... The Muscles from Brussels shows he is more than just a pair of lean kickboxing legs in JCVD, which is available now on Hulu. It's a nakedly confessional film in which he stars as himself, Jean-Claude Van Damme, an actor who's fallen on some hard times and who winds up getting caught in the middle of a bank heist. And Van Damme has several really good scenes, so good, in fact, you'll wonder where this JCVD came from and where he went again and why he doesn't show up 
in any of the movies where he doesn't play himself. But at least we have this one. That is JCVD. That is available now on Hulu. All right, two listener recommendations. Our first comes from David E., who recommends Pentatonix On My Way Home. David writes, this just popped up on Netflix. It's a concert tour film, a bit lightweight with some sloppy editing, but I loved it. I've been following this band, Pentatonix, for several years. It's a cappella music of the highest quality, mainly, though, as the film shows, the five band members are truly likable. They have a fantastic relationship with their fans, their crew members, and each other. The backstory is that three of them went to high school together in Arlington, Texas, and the tour is gradually working its way to Arlington for the final show, and there are some nice emotional moments throughout. So that's Pentatonix On My Way Home. That's on Netflix, and that's a recommendation from David E. David, thanks for the recommendation. Next up, a recommendation from Matt H. And Matt writes, Hey guys, I've been binging on the podcast lately and love it. Thanks for putting on such a great show. My streaming recommendation is for a movie called Ask Me Anything, starring Britt Robertson and written and directed by Allison Burnett. The cover art and description makes it sound like a teen sex comedy, but it's far from it. Ask Me Anything is an indie drama about a troubled girl coming of age while working through a surprising amount of inner conflict. She chronicles her sex life in a blog, and through that lens, the movie gives the viewer a fully formed view of a confused girl making poor decisions and how she reacts to the fallout of those choices. It's a very affecting movie and left me with lots to think about, and it ends in a way that has stuck with me quite a bit, even now several months after seeing it. The cast also includes Christian Slater, Martin Sheen, Justin Long, and Robert Patrick, and Matt also wrote a review of the film. Maybe we'll tweet out a link to it after the podcast goes live so people who want to read more of Matt's thoughts can uh, check those out. So that is the movie Ask Me Anything, and that's a recommendation from Matt H. Thank you, Matt. All right, and one from your My List. You gave me number 17, and right now number 17 on my list is The Sweet Blood of Jesus. That is the recent Spike Lee film. I guess a loose or unofficial remake of Ganjin Hess, the uh, indie sort of black exploitation vampire movie. And the description of the movie is stabbed by an ancient dagger. Archaeologist Hess Green develops a lust for human blood and commences a sanguine affair with a beautiful socialite. This was the movie he kickstarted as well, I believe, which was a a large topic of discussion when that was all going on. I still haven't seen it. And and now he's got a new movie coming up, which is a Amazon Prime film, right? Yes, it's much discussed film already. Chirac. That uh, that Spike Lee still knows how to generate discussion. I will give him that. I like Spike Lee, and I, I'm just I haven't seen this movie yet. I need to get around to it. I got to bump it up a little. This was not, not that long ago. This was like number three on my my list. But they've been adding so much stuff that it got bumped a little further down. So I need to push it back up to the top and finally catch up with it. The sweet blood of Jesus. All right, it's time to discuss listener's choice options. Now, as one of our uh, listeners who wrote in is pointing out, our next episode, Allison, is the 100th episode of Film Spotting SVU. So what are we going to do to celebrate? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Sorry. We're not doing anything different. It's a tough time right now. <laughs> we've got little, a lot going on. We're a little busy, all right? <laughs> uh, we are talking about maybe doing a live show, actually, in the near future. Yes. We wanted to do it for the 100th episode, but the timing is just... It's just too rough. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've got, with, the, with the baby. I have a baby coming very soon. Imminently. So yes. that made it difficult to... <laughs> It would be unfortunate if it happened to coincide. Allison, uh, I know we're supposed to go on live right. in front of uh, a bunch of people in about 25 minutes, but uh, yeah. 
Just talk for like just, two hours just by yourself. Do you know what? Just vamp for like the next 36 hours while my <laughs> wife is in labor and I'll come sometime after that. I'm no, gonna, so I'm tell her that's what you predicted for her labor. I'm sure she'd appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully we will sort of celebrate after the fact with a live show uh, somewhere in New York, in Brooklyn, uh, in probably a couple of months, I would think. But in the meantime, we're just going to keep carrying on like we do. But we do have an, uh, kind of a fun theme for these listeners' choice options for our next episode, as I'm sure most of our listeners are already aware. A, uh, a filmmaker by the name of Quentin Tarantino has a new movie coming out next month. It is called The Hateful Eight. It is in 70-millimeter Ultra Panavision. And if you're lucky, you'll maybe be able to see it on film in 70-millimeter Ultra Panavision. Oh, what, like eight hours of it? It's supposedly it's... very long. It's supposedly three hours long and largely set in one place. But it's in 70-millimeter Ultra Panavision, Allison. So we thought, given that people are obviously very excited to see the new Quentin Tarantino movie, let's talk about Quentin Tarantino. As luck would have it, quite a few of his movies are actually streaming right now on Netflix. So we thought, let's do a all-Tarantino listener's choice. Our first one is his first uh, feature-length film, Reservoir Dogs from 1992. It is streaming right now on both Netflix and Amazon Prime. I will read you the plot description in case you are unfamiliar with Reservoir Dogs. It is a 1992 American neo-noir black comedy crime thriller that depicts the events before and after a botched diamond heist. And why I would be interested to see rewatch, obviously, because I've seen this movie many times, would be one, it's his first movie. It's Tarantino's first movie. So interesting to look at his first movie and compare it to his most recent and see how far he's come. And also, having not seen The Hateful Eight yet, Allison, to me, it looks a lot like Reservoir Dogs. You have a bunch of characters all holed up together in this one location. With trust issues. And they don't trust each other. Exactly. So to me, it almost seems like a Western kind of remake of Reservoir Dogs. So I think it would be interesting to see it in that context. So option one, Reservoir Dogs, streaming now on Netflix and Amazon Prime. All right. Option two is... A more recent Quentin Tarantino film, it is Inglorious Bastards, his 2009 film, his uh, alternate history of World War II as told through the plot of a a French Jewish woman who runs a, a theater and uh, through a team of Jewish American soldiers who are uh, willing to 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 be as tough and as rough and as violent and as inglorious and as inglorious. Glorious and inglorious. Um, cast includes Brad Pitt, Christoph Waltz, uh, Diane Kruger, Michael Fassbender, and Eli Roth. I will confess, I was very mixed on this film when I saw it first. And I don't think I've revisited it since, which is why I'm really interested in taking another look at it. Yeah. Um, I have not been a huge fan of the last two Quentin Tarantino films. I think that would be another interesting thing to discuss. Um, we're pretty much on the same boat. I, I, I haven't seen it since it came out. I liked it, but certainly not one of my favorite Tarantino movies. In fact, I probably would have said it was my least favorite until that time. And now, having seen Django Unchained, I would say yeah. that that is probably my least favorite Quentin Tarantino. So there's a sort of a downward trend, at least for me at and least until me. hateful eight hopefully that reverses that yeah, yeah fingers crossed but so i think you know for, for me this was a turning point in yeah. my relationship with the movies of quentin tarantino so it'd be interesting to 
revisit it and also to try to see why why was it a turning point what about it made it a turning point at least for us i think there's a lot there we could talk about so that is streaming on netflix and then you can rent it on amazon but it is not streaming on amazon all right and option number three would be the two-part double feature kill bill volumes one and two from 2003 and 2004 and those are both streaming on netflix and amazon prime of course this is about the bride played by uma thurman seeking revenge on the assassination squad led by Bill David Carradine, uh, who tried to kill her and her unborn child. Uh, another one's uh, – you know, I've, I've seen these a little bit more. Like, I, I, it's not just I, – I saw them in the theaters, obviously, but I haven't really, like, watched and rewatched them. And I don't think I've ever seen both of them back-to-back. I don't think I have either. I have also seen part one far more than I've seen part two. Me too. Yeah. Yes. Part one, I've seen a lot more. I think maybe it was on cable a lot, and I was watching it when I uh, was watching it when I was watching a lot of cable. You know, pre-streaming, like when you were, you know, that was like a movie that I watched a bunch of times, but not part two. You're right. So, I think it would be interesting to watch the whole thing, and to uh, and to uh, see how this one is aging. It's now more than ten years old. So how does Kill Bill's volume ones and twos hold up? I think that would be a a plenty interesting topic of discussion as well. So that's option three, Kill Bill volume one and two on Netflix or Amazon Prime. All right. Which of these instances of the cinema do Tarantino should we (laughs) review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Units? You can always send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or you can enter in the poll on the right hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, November 30th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at FilmSpottingSVU. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will be probably our year-end episode as well. Yeah. Uh, baby, you know, baby allowing uh, on Tuesday, December 8th. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal, and you can listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. We will be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the Quentin Tarantino movie review you pick. But in the meantime, we strongly encourage you to follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore, at Matt Singer, and also follow the show at Film Spotting SVU because that is where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we constantly share more streaming suggestions from ourselves and from you guys, the SVU listeners. You know, we should point out, it's the holiday season, it's Thanksgiving, and while we wish all of you a happy Thanksgiving, if you are thankful for film spotting SVU, <laughs> we hope that you will give back in a small way by going to iTunes, give us five stars, uh, give us a review, tell people to check out the show. It really helps us reach new listeners, and if you do so, we would then in turn give thanks to you. A circle of thanks for Thanksgiving. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.